Alrighty, so back again. We're going to continue exploring Cinema 1, The Movement Image by Gilles Deleuze. Uh, thank God, once again, I'm joined by Christina, because otherwise I'd be doomed. Uh, so Christina, who the hell are you? Oh, I'm Christina L. Burke. I'm a third-year PhD student at the Center for the Study of Theory and Criticism. My work uh, specializes in the relationship between cinema and philosophy, particularly French New Wave cinema and uh, French philosophy of that time period. Um, Godard is really my person, and he informs a lot of what I do. But these books have also been very important to me over the years. Uh, I'm also a writer. I wrote a screenplay. Uh, I've been involved with filmmaking in the past. Um, I have a great Twitter account. You should all check out at Cello Burke. Same on Instagram. And hey, if you're in London, hit me up on Lex. <laughs> nice. Cello Burke like the instrument. Yeah, like the instrument. <laughs> it's a, it's an easy enough handle to, to find. Like, not like mine. Theory underscore and underscore philosophy. No, I, I wanted something that had a real catchy ring to it. I, I, like I knew that. it was going to blow up someday, so that's... <laughs> we're, and we're going to help you get you there. Mm. So what? where are we now? <laughs> we finished we're, talking about montage. We finished talking about montage. We got, we got through the first three chapters of the movement image. And so we're at... This is a good place to start. We're at the second commentary on Bergson. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, and so this starts off... Uh, we're gonna we're gonna dunk on phenomenology. I mean, we wouldn't be Delusian if we didn't uh, yeah, dunk we, on ph phenomenology. Exactly. Uh, so Deleuze kind of makes this claim that phenomenology is a very ambiguous relationship to cinema. Uh, the only sort of, I guess, major phenomenological thinker who talked about cinema was Merleau-Ponty. Yeah, and that's very briefly. It's like one lecture. Sure. Um, so Sartre, Heidegger, etc., they don't talk about cinema at all. Yeah. And so Deleuze is kind of like, well, why is this? Or what? What is? What's wrong with cinema that they they're not thinking about it? Yeah. And so it's because phenomenology favors this idea of sort of natural perception or embedded perception that. Uh, consciousness sort of exists in an embodied human form and then cinema is sort of a secondary way of looking at the world it's like a supplement to consciousness and so in phenomenology movement is something that happens right to the conscious being yes and so consciousness becomes this kind of emission yeah it like it's it's centered in the body and then it's directed out at things intentionality husserl all that stuff and these things are out there just for us yes like this magical natural world that exists out there and we just consume it it just comes to us magical beings and that's it yes for bergson and i think this jives with matter and memory uh though i could be wrong um cinema as we remember from the discussion of creative evolution, cinema kind of has the same failing as what the phenomenologists would call natural perception. So it takes shots of the world. Right, yeah. Uh, but in Deleuze's reading, where cinema is a movement image, uh, movement images and matter kind of become the same thing. And right. everything is a movement image. So consciousness is its own form of movement image. Everything is all these per, per, endlessly proliferating images. And the quote there, the Bergson quote is like, everything is, consciousness 
is consciousness of everything or all consciousness is something all consciousness is something okay yeah so yeah. that so the counterpoint so the phenomenology version is all consciousness is consciousness of something right okay yeah and then for bergson all consciousness is something yes yes and so what we get here is a light isn't something that comes out of consciousness directed towards the world everything kind of emits its own light yes and yes. they're they're picked up on each other so that they sort of reflect one another mm -hmm. and moving into the next section we get into this idea that he doesn't really say but there is in sort of the what we could call the subject or the viewer there is this blank screen yeah that's going to reflect things in an interview with Kaya du Cinema, Deleuze will be a lot more direct and just say the brain is the screen. Okay. So brains are, looking at it this way, kind of like where images are going to be projected onto. Right. Okay. And I think this is a helpful way of thinking about it, is that there is this receptive surface mm -hmm. that is the human subject for lack of a better term for these images to be projected upon right so it's not as though this human has like almost full command over what it is they're taking in and understanding they just see the world and it's they just decode it yeah. no they are themselves this thing upon which the world kind of puts itself yes and this is Bergson that's Bergson okay this is this is in matter and memory he he, he says a very similar thing, that there is the the image which consciousness is yes. that takes in and reflects all these other images. Right. But it's it's one image among many. It's not it's not as if there's a privileging yeah. of yeah. any images here. Yeah. Yeah. So the privileging ends up happening in the interval mm -hmm. that sort of is created in cinema. The the selection of certain images to show instead of others and so this is this is kind of a decentered subjective perception like um the the camera consciousness sort of puts intervals between images to capture specific moments so it doesn't capture everything it captures specific things right um and so perception leads to a kind of reaction when something is perceived it changes the thing changes when it's perceived yes okay and so or there's and so this is a kind of like sensory motor okay. schema we're getting into that yeah. thing now yeah, yeah, that's yeah. going to be important so so when you perceive things there's it does a virtual action on us we we are become aware of all these different possibilities, but it also does like possible action on things. So they're able to react in certain ways. Right. Yeah. And in between perceiving and acting, we have something called affection. How is, <laughs> how is affect different from phenomenology? Oh, I need, I need, 
I need that question to be expanded upon before I can answer it. Okay, well, because it seems to me like Deleuze is pretty skeptical of what phenomenology might offer, mm-hmm. especially if we're going to consider something like the cinema. But whereas I see his, he's committed to the idea that there are affects, there are things that operate upon one another, mm-hmm. but he doesn't want to give that over to like a phenomenological explanation. Is that because phenomena phenomenology affords too great a place to like this subject that is just like experiencing the world yeah he's he's really at pains to distinguish between affect and emotion okay okay so a consciousness directed towards affect is going to produce emotion okay yeah yeah whereas an affect on its own is uh like that virtual emotion that emotion in a virtual or pure state okay it isn't yet directed or actualized in a form it is just affect yeah outside us a subjective mm-hmm. and so that's that's where i think he departs from phenomenology because phenomenology sure. would always be we're feeling in response to things we're conscious yeah of an affection taking hold of us and yeah. it becomes feeling yeah whereas deleuze wants to talk about it in that pre-conscious state mm-hmm. when it is still pot kind of unfiltered possibility yes 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 yes. okay good 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 and so we get the three aspects of the movement image the perception image the affection image and the action image yes and as soon as deleuze introduces these three things the last section of this chapter here's how you get rid of them all yeah (laughs) Yeah. Here's how you blow them all up. And he uses Beckett's film starring Buster Keaton as an example. Right. And uh, Deleuze has written about film multiple times. He he writes about it, I think, in Essays Critical and Clinical. And it's it's a very interesting summary of how film pushes each one of these terms to sort of an extreme where it breaks down. And... The point where it breaks down each time is sort of where it becomes self-reflexive, when it begins to think about itself, when it gains an awareness of itself. When it arrives at its limit point? It yeah. Says, okay. So the, the the question he asks in this section is, how do we rid ourselves of ourselves? Right. Okay. And it involves a kind of stepping outside. How very Deleuzean. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's, that's, that's where we're going to go when we get to the time images we start we start being outside of the things we're engaging with we're we're reflecting not especially self-reflecting we're not just participating or acting okay um but that will be later he just wanted to show that he could break the idea he came up with yeah uh, and, so, and it is a good idea. I mean, I, I reading this, the, these three different kind of movement images, I was like, oh, man, 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 yeah. you got a point. You got a point. You yes. got a point. But yeah. Yeah. We'll I, get there. We'll break them down. Yeah. Uh, before that, I guess it's, it's another interesting formal thing he does where he uh, identifies each type of image with a certain type of shot. So yeah. uh, perception images are long shots. Close-ups are affection images, and medium shots are action images. Yep, yep. And he 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 gives each one a genre. Of course. 
the the western is of course the domain of perception film noir the domain of action and carl dreyer as the affection, <laughs> which I think is really fun. One guy. Yeah. The passion of Joan of Arc is the affection image. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, and these images are going to be made by editing, by montage. Right. And he, he says that, and this is on page 66, he says that essentially we are only an assemblage of the three images. So while, like, he does say, you know, this image belongs here mm. in this school or this person like this they they embody this so they really represent it uh he also says that they you know can come in and out of various different you know film schools film you know film directors anything like that and that you know you can't just say that there's one like this is the affection image movie and that's (laughs) it because as we will come to see yeah the affection image gets undone as soon as we start to kind of problematize these these narrow terms yeah i also think with the affection image especially it's going to be our way out okay of the of the movement image completely right um and we'll talk about that when we get to the end but it's it's very it's very much that like yes all movement images are made up of these three things whenever we discover a movement image we're discovering all of these things along with it but there are certain ideal types yes you could say or signs of best fit or something like that so chapter five the perception image yes and this starts with one of my favorite parts in the book because it's it's such a just like Deleuze Deleuze has no time for point of view shots (laughs) okay yeah yeah that's he doesn't really talk about that no he he, he doesn't like it i didn't He's, think about that he uh he, he talks about how the the difference between objective and subjective images right and he's he basically but, says it's it's constantly in flux but neither of them neither of them are really talking about point of view shots necessarily no i think i think he gets to that a little later i think i might have jumped the gun I yeah, it's, it's, in, it's in the affection image where he really gets... Okay. He, he gets mad about point of view shots. But, uh, or I got mad on his behalf. One or the other. Uh, so, basically, what he's going to borrow from Pasolini and say that cinema kind of operates in a free, indirect discourse. Okay. And that the cinematic cogito, he borrows pretty explicitly from Descartes, is that... There's no subject which acts without another who watches it. Okay. And so there's there's a, there's always a correlation between a perception image and camera consciousness. And he calls this kind of correlation a ditch assign? Right. Yeah, I don't to know. To use the first term? I wrote all the purse terms down. Oh my god, yeah. So I'll bring them up when they come up, but I'm the purse is really not my area of expertise. Yeah. <laughs> But he calls this a free and direct proposition. Yeah. So free and direct discourse, just to explain it briefly, um, Pasolini writes this article on literature talking about Italian and Russian literature because they're very, they have very specific dialects. Yeah. So an author will write in maybe the general sort of proper Italian, but then there'll be a sentence expressing a character's thought in dialect. Sure. Yeah. 
So the narration moves from the kind of official language to the dialect. Yeah, okay. And thus the narration itself is never fixed. Okay. It's it's free and indirect. It can be yeah. objective and neutral, or it can be subjective and being spoken in the local sort of dialect and to they, express they something. fold into one another. And, yeah. And sure. And so... Pasolini tries to apply this sort of idea to film. Yeah. In that, yeah, there's... There is these kind of neutral or objective sort of shots, but then something happens along the way that will express a very specific thought or feeling. And he... Uh, I think the essay by Pasolini is called The Cinema of Poetry. Okay. And he talks about Godard and Antonioni and how they, they both do this in different ways. Yeah. Um, so that's where Deleuze is getting this from and where he's sort of grounding his like, okay, perceptions, they're free and indirect. Yeah. They're not, they're not subjective or objective. Let's stop trying to do that. And he, he, there's another term he uses, semi-subjectivity or semi-subjective. I don't know if that is, <laughs> is the antidote or the, the, the way that he wants yeah, to Yeah, I, I think that's probably it okay. too. Cause like the free and direct, what is it? expressing is it expressing the character the author or right the camera yeah <laughs> and it's it's sort of like we can never pin it down we can never say this shot is subjective this shot is objective sure yeah uh it's always sort of in flux so it's from here that we go to french impressionism and german expressionism as uh two poles of the subjective but pushed to different extremes yeah and here's where we get the the, the liquid turn. <laughs> the liquid the, turn, yeah. Yes. Uh, water as the, the ideal site of rhythm. Liquid perception. <laughs> yes. And so he starts talking about this opposition between land and sea. Yeah. That French cinema particularly has. And uh, so this just makes me think of Jean Vigo's film La Delanta from 1932. I- I don't know. It might be Latalant. It's French. Uh, I, I think I made it Italian. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's about uh, this couple that gets married and they one of them is a sailor on the ship. So the wife has to learn to live aboard this boat. Right. Okay. And there's yeah. sort of these eccentric sailors and there's this conflict between she she's from land, but she has to learn this new way of life at sea. And it's very... It seems very lawless and disorganized. And right. It's a very sort of sort of uh, sweetly romantic film, but it definitely captures this liquid perception. And the other way he kind of described that in contrasting it to land was that on land you could be relatively motionless, whereas on the sea you can't be. And he describes it where on land you can go from being motionless in one point to motionless in another point, whereas in the sea you're always in movement, you might go to another place, but at that place, you're always still going to be in movement because you're yeah. still <laughs> rocking on the waters. Yeah, exactly. So, like, uh, the the movement determines the point mm-hmm. as opposed to points being determined by right. movement. Yeah. Um, and so he calls this a, oh, God, another purse, uh, a room or a realm. I don't know how to say these these purse words. How do you spell all. that one? R-E-U-M-E. Chum, maybe? Yeah. I guess that, that's it's, like it's, a flu. <laughs> it, 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 not spelled that way. It's all right. Yeah. 
any uh, native French speakers, don't laugh at me too hard. Um, but yeah, this is this is a flowing perception, <laughs> and he's going to call it molecular, not molar. Oh, for for yeah. all you Deleuze heads, yeah, the, he yeah. brings the terminology in. So for those that don't know, <laughs> there's a distinction between the molar and the molecular in Deleuze, where, to put it really quite simply, the molar corresponds to big things, and the molecular corresponds to small things. So the molar might be, I don't know, a man or woman, whereas the molecular might be like the possibilities afforded to each in their own subjective potentialities. Do you have a better way to put that? Oh, no, that sounds good. Okay, yeah. So there's a difference there. Yeah. So this is why he's excited about the molecular. <laughs> and yeah, so from there he goes back to Vertov, and he talks about the I in matter, and how this creates sort of perceptions that are incommensurable to the human eye. Right. Um, and he also starts to put intertitles on images, so they become ideograms. And so the, these interruptions transform movement. Um, the camera can go anywhere in Vertov. So it's like in one shot in Vertov, it looks like the cameraman is standing like on top of a beer glass and they're microscopic. Okay. Yeah. So it's very much like the camera is now just, just, it's capable of going anywhere. There's matter. Yeah. The camera can occupy that space. Yeah. And so he's going to call this a gram. A purse term I can finally pronounce. Gram. <laughs> yeah. Or um, sort of gaseous perception as opposed to the liquid perception of the Gaseous. Gaseous. Yeah. Like gas. Yeah. And from here, from Vertov, he uses Vertov as the... He basically says Vertov is the inspiration for all avant-garde cinema. Okay. And he brings up the American sort of avant-garde. So we can think here of people like Maya Darren... Stan Brackage, Hollis Frampton, right. these kinds of people. Yeah. Who, uh, Stan Brackage, you know, he's just putting stuff directly on film. He's like putting dirt and moth wings directly on moth the film wings, strip. Yeah. yeah. Did, did he do the eye thing too? Who did the eye with the eye cutting the eye there? Oh, that was the surrealists. Never mind. Yeah. Moth, moth what was it called? Mothlight. Mothlight. Yes. Yeah. And yes. Uh, Brackage would also just paint directly on the film strip. Right. And stuff like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Deleuze just has this point where he's like well so when vertov was doing all this this was like vertov's ideal form of communism you know the okay the, the proletarian eye that becomes yeah. one with machinic space and all that stuff right but the american avant-gardists aren't communists so what are what are they trying to invoke sure yeah. drugs <laughs> That's the answer. This is That's the answer. <laughs> this is, drugs take the place of a communist utopia in the avant-garde. Wow. So it's still gaseous perception. The camera can emerge from all matter. Yeah. But now it is because of uh, LSD <laughs> that it teaches us that we can have this experience. This is one of the parts of the book where I just rolled my eyes really hard and said, okay, <laughs> you can certainly think that. I like to think there was more to Brackage's creative practice than yeah yeah, yeah I have I have it in my notes it's drug like yeah in that it reveals molecular intervals the, yes. the things that can only be revealed when you're high on LSD yeah you you see the connections that were otherwise not like not there yeah <laughs> but yeah that's 
That's that's the perception image is uh, drugs. Drugs. <laughs> All right, then uh, the affection image. Yeah, so faces and close-ups. Faces and close-ups. Yeah. Uh, affection images are components of all images, and he talks about the clock face. Right. And how uh, we we see a kind of face in the clock, even though it's not really... It doesn't have the same qualities as a face. But right. Yeah. It gets faceified. And he begins talking about sort of the elements of the close-up. They express, like, admiration and desire. Yeah. Wonder. Uh, and so there's the the poles again. Uh, intensive movement versus reflection. Power versus quality. Uh, he has that table of values on page 90 that I'm not going to recite now. Table of values. Yeah, he... The, yeah, sensible nerve, motor tendency, immobile, receptive plate, micro-movements of expression. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Okay, yeah. I feel like he is just he is just giving birth to affect theory. Right, yeah. Right now. And this comes out of the two poles of the face. Yeah. Right, so this and more poles between power and quality. Yes. Yeah, this is... This is going to found an entire discipline. I have no idea how it does it. I, I read these two chapters on affect, and I'm like, this became a whole affect theory sells. What happened? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I found this really confusing when he was talking about how a close-up of a face de-individualizes, de-individuates the person. To some extent, or how the uh, the close-up in my what I wrote down, the close-up does not perform a close-up of a face. A face is already a close-up. The camera instead only does a close-up of its own face. Am I on LSD or? <laughs> You're gonna have to repeat that last part to me. The close-up only does a close-up of its own face, or the camera only. Give me your book. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> I'm going to be that person on my version. I think this is the same one. Or actually, no, better yet. I can bring it on mine. I was on crack. <laughs> <laughs> I Explained the close-up and the face. What happens with the close-up and the face? Please, sure. Christina, save me. Sure, just let me, let me double-check. I'm not jumping ahead to Bergman, because that's going to be the easiest way to think about this. Or okay, yeah. Let's 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 actually talk about Pandora's box and the knife, the the Jack the Ripper knife. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. So, what what sort of happens there is the knife itself in close up represents the possibilities of violence that could take place the close-up of the knife has this affection but it is not those violent qualities it just signals those to us this isn't where he talks about like the the light reflecting off the knife no yeah, that'll be that's later, later. okay yeah, yeah. Okay, all right all right all right soon uh and so at the same time we see 
uh, a close-up in that sequence of Jack the Ripper's face as he looks at the knife and right. he expresses this this hideous desire. Yeah. And so what Deleuze wants to say is that the close-up isn't communicating something about character. It's not giving us narrative information. It's giving us this pure affect. Yes. Okay. And so what's being expressed is a power or a quality um, through the face. And yeah. so when we see a close-up, we're, we're com- the situation sort of melts away. The, the bigger situation, the bigger picture goes away, and we're just given the face. Yeah. And the face yeah. on its own is purely affective. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, I imagine Deleuze would say if you paused, say, a medium shot and zoomed in on someone's face, this would also be, like, discovering an affection image. I would assume so, but, like, okay, but the director didn't intend that, and therefore, what would that mean? Right? If, if you know, yeah. we manipulate the image to get, to produce an affect or to produce this close-up, what then happens? Like, what, like, is that really, are we talking about cinema at that point, or are we talking about something new? Because that's, not... that's a really good question. I don't, I think taking Deleuze as broadly as possible, all faces are capable of being affection images at any moment. Right. So why if would you, we... If you limit yourself to the face. Yes. But of course, normally, any, anything. They're, they're part of bigger situations. Yeah. And so... Um, he's going to talk about expression and lyrical abstraction here. Lyrical abstraction is a made up <laughs> genre. This, this isn't a thing. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, this is where I begin to like partially lose my mind because the, this, this lyrical abstraction that he talks about, he uses Joseph von Sternberg as an example. You're right. Sternberg is uh, an American silent filmmaker who goes to Germany, meets Marlena Dietrich, and brings her back to America, and right. makes a bunch of Hollywood films about Dietrich. And he's a very sort of ironic filmmaker. The movies are usually about Dietrich uh, subverting or ruining a man's life. And that sounds really stereotypical and bad, but I assure you these films give her a lot more subjective agency than it sounds like. do they yes uh the devil is a woman despite the title incredible film um i kind of like the title the, anyway. devil, the devil wears prada <laughs> i don't think it's a reference sadly um and so he he draws a distinction in expressionism we've talked about it light and darkness extremes uh lyrical abstraction is translucence and I see where he gets this from in terms of the fact that Sternberg's movies are full of curtains. Oh, okay. And Dietrich's face sort of hidden behind veils. Yeah. yeah. And things like that. So it's very much like... Um, it's... The, the translucence comes through. There's And he's, he's also a very layered filmmaker. There's Depth really matters. The image is always like being cut off from us slightly. So I see where Deleuze gets this idea of translucence. I don't know where he gets the like term lyrical abstraction from, and I don't quite get it. And we can talk about this more later when it comes up again. But he contrasts it with expressionism. Sure. And I think the thing to note about lyrical abstraction is just the way 
uh, instead of expressionism, where you have shadows created by darkness, here shadows are a consequence of where the light stops. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right, all right. So all right, where... Where light doesn't reach is where shadows emerge, yeah. but it's not its not like the Expressionists who are working with chiaroscuro. Yes. Uh, deliberately. So, and I can't remember how he gets to there talking about the face. Somehow. somehow. <laughs> somehow. We don't need to talk about he, Yeah, he gets to this, uh, and then, okay. Yeah, no, it's the third part where he gets onto um, faces aren't partial objects. They're, they're pure affects. And we talked about this a little bit already. Um, so he he's basically saying that this is where he gets really against like what in the North American Academy we'd call suture theory. What is that? So suture theory essentially derived from the idea of point of view shots. It's that uh, our sense of illusion or the imaginary coherence of a film is determined by making sure that something is always being looked at by something else in a film. Okay. So if we see an image of a landscape, we the next shot should be of a character looking at that landscape. I see. Okay. And so their gaze, knowing what they were looking at, sutures or closes off. Yeah. The fact that these are two separate images and creates the illusion of continuity. Sure. Okay. But what Deleuze wants to say with the face is that shots aren't partial objects. That face is actually a whole that expresses something. It doesn't depend on the image that came before it. Right. Right. And so he's rejecting this necessity of suture. For him, editing on its own produces the whole. Like, you don't need to create this imaginary illusion of looking. Right, yeah. Um, uh, just to do my purse cataloging, uh, <laughs> these close-ups are going to be called icons. Right. Uh, so, and there's two kinds, uh, icons of feature and icons of outline. Uh, and we talked about this when we talked about sort of the abstraction of uh, affection images how they're 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 separate from the situation and this i think we need to talk about or we should address firstness and secondness yes what the hell is that and eventually thirdness but it's the thirdness is the real twist that brings the whole book together right (laughs) um so firstness is what is new in experience okay um so it's powers or qualities considered for themselves, the category of the possible, expression, not actualization. So the knife of Jack the Ripper isn't murder, but it expresses murder right. as an affection. It expresses, vi- expresses violence and death. Yeah. And so that knife that expresses violence and death is indeterminate of any space-time. Right. It's not, uh, it's not a metaphor. It's not a, like, it's not part of a cinematic utterance. Just that image of that knife expresses these qualities. Right, yeah. 
And so that is firstness. So secondness will be when we get to situations and things that participate in those. And I think I'll save Actions the explanation and... of secondness to when we get to the action image and he defines it more thoroughly. Right. Okay. But yeah, That's as long cool. as we know, firstness, close-ups, separate from the space-time situation right. to which they belong. Right. And in his terms, he says... The affection image is, quote, abstracted from the spatio-temporal coordinates which would relate it to a state of things. Yes. On 97. So affects are virtual, to put it in the most direct Deleuzian way possible. Perfect. And I think that's what draws a lot of people to them, if I had to guess. To perception image? To, to affect. To affect, okay. Just as a field is yeah. that affects are a way to talk about not just emotions, but possible emotions and invocations right. and yeah. how these things are formed. Because they're always grounded in a thing. Yeah. We never we never experience pure affect. Yeah. Affects always arise from things. But yeah. they're they're in things out there. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's where a lot of the appeal lies. Um, so then we get into the any space whatevers and chapter seven, the next chapter on the affection image is okay. Just repeating kind of what we've been over faces are virtual conjunctions. Uh, medium shots relate to a state of things as opposed to the close-ups. Yep. Um, there's one point where he gets very Aristotelian and scares the crap out of me, where he says the face is the hyla to which the director adds expression. <laughs> okay. We'll take it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, again, close-ups, singular function, he says they turn like planets. I remember that line, the face is always turning. It's turning away from us as we turn towards it. Yeah. Uh, this is its sort of individual quality. And yeah, I think it's I think here just this is this is Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc. Like right. this this film is about those those close-ups of Maria Falconetti as Joan of Arc is tortured and interrogated and the whole film is her just expression her face as she endures this right and what her face presents to us and it's never something the movie never gives us an intertitle saying Joan is we're just always given this pure affective state of this woman this incredible actress and I think her only film performance so okay I was gonna ask you about a modern film or filmmaker Nicholas Winding Refn, where he's obsessed with close-ups on faces. Mm-hmm. He's not the only one, but I'm interested in him because the faces that he's interested in, and he did he did films like uh, I looked at the computer as I was talking, like Drive with Ryan Gosling, or Only God Forgives with Ryan Gosling, or Valhalla Rising with uh, Matt uh, Mickelson. Matt, Matt Mickelson at uh, the Pusher series. I'm mad series. about Matt. Oh. You are you? Matt Mickelson's great. He's pretty cool. Yeah, he's pretty cool. Um, where there are these close-ups, but 
there's there's almost no emotion. And I don't know if you have anything to say about that. I'm just curious about your opinion. Yeah, it sounds like if if we're using Deleuze, which we don't have to, but um, it sounds like he's working more in the outline mode than... Uh, I forgot what the outline was in contrast to. Hold on. But yeah, I think I think Refn's sort of the... The primary affect in Refn is this kind of coldness. Yeah. This yeah. kind of indifference. Yeah. Um, at least in Valhalla Rising and Drive. And I think in Only God Forgives too. Um, there's his... He's always trying to sort of show a, a, a pure sort of uh, indifference which these characters have to the world that they're very especially in drive and valhalla rising the characters are kind of only good at one thing (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah uh and so they 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 lack a kind of emotionality and it's that and it's that sort of misery i think refin wants to try and but even he relies on the close-up to convey that lack of yeah affect almost that lack of well affect and emotion being separate yeah certainly a lack of emotion yeah, he, he relies on the close-up, I think, to... If we look at Refn's work as a whole, it's very brutal and nihilistic. Yeah. And I think his close-ups um, are also kind of brute and nihilistic. Yeah. Too. And I think so there's... In Refn, the action is the realization of that kind of brute nihilism that's captured in these faces. Yeah. That would be the Delizian way to yeah. <laughs> sort of read it. Okay, cool. I just I just wanted to ask that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fine. Uh, so yeah, any space, whatever. Um, Bresson's the example he uses here, and this is perfect. Bresson's films, uh, like Pickpocket, are all about close-ups of hands, not close-ups of faces. Sure. So hands reaching into people's coats, things like this, and the other thing about Bresson is that he never uses establishing shots right so you're just put into a scene and you're given fragments of the space but you're never you never see the whole picture you never see the entire space um, unless there's like a long shot or something but you're never you're, you're never given the geometry of a place and so this this creates any space whatever where you know, he, Deleuze uses the term qualisign from Purse, again, um, as, like, each each space, each location becomes sort of singular in this way. And sure. also becomes sort of affective. And so in the third section, he's going to talk about shadows transforming any space, whatever. Yeah, and the introduction of shadows produces a depth in the image that makes it also into these kind of singular spaces, and we can look at spaces as being affects. Yep. Um, and so he returns to lyrical abstraction again. Uh, he talks about the affect in these films as being faith, and he talks about Sternberg, Bresson, and Dreyer. This is insane. <laughs> just 
it drives this this part drives me nuts. This is where I stopped reading this book before because I was like, these three filmmakers are not similar. Yeah, they have nothing in common. Dreyer and Bressel, they're both religious. You can group them together. What is Sternberg doing here? Sure, he's, he's making. I mean, I I'm saying sure. I have no idea, but I'm taking your word for it. Sternberg is making these these romantic misadventures. Okay, with a keen sense of irony. Bresson is making films about spiritual emptiness, and Dreyer is making films about the difficulty of faith. Like <laughs> there, the two of one of these is not like the other. Two. <laughs> <laughs> but how does he justify bringing them all together? So he gets to this idea from Pascal and Kierkegaard of choosing to choose. Okay, and this idea is really fascinating to me that all the characters in these films are confronted with being capable of choices or not making choices and just trying to go with the flow okay fine but like why would you stop the list there i feel like any number of these other directors that he's mentioned could then fit into that I think it's because these are the central thematics of their films. Sure, okay. Um, Though you could make the argument that this is a perennial sort of issue in philosophy and things. Like, he he goes through the history of it. Pascal, Kierkegaard, they have a very religious notion of choosing to choose. Pascal has the wager. Kierkegaard has uh, faith in the absurd. But then there's also the sort of atheistic version, which is Sartre. Yeah. And Sartre's radical freedom, the mm-hmm. bad faith, you know, the the waiter isn't a waiter. He's someone who chooses to be a waiter. <laughs> and if he says, no, I am a waiter, then he's he's wrong. He's in bad faith. He's, yeah. he's mistaken about his essence. So what brings these filmmakers together is they're, they're choosing to choose... Right. Their, their, their characters coming to this moment where they become aware of their ability to make a choice and sort of renew themselves in their choice over and over again. And they can only do this in the sort of abstraction of any space, whatever. Yeah. Where each space has a quality of the new. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a possibility afforded to this, this setup as opposed to these... Pr- previously these privileged spaces that were relatively fixed yeah like you were here and that's where you were that's it <laughs> you're stuck yeah that's so that's that's why he groups those three filmmakers together i still think it's nuts i i wouldn't put sternberg with press on and dryer i'll take your word for it uh i i just can't wrap my head around it uh he talks a little bit about color images um then he uses the famous Godard quote when uh, Godard came out with his film Piro Le Fou in 1965. Everyone said, this movie is so bloody. And Godard said, no, 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 it's not blood, it's red. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's right. <laughs> they, there, there was probably no blood. Yeah. <laughs> there was no blood, it's red. Uh, and so, yeah, color, color has this sort of quality and he gives a couple of examples uh vincent minnelli's sort of musicals which have these very dreamlike quality at uh, the ending of american in paris which is uh completely ripped off in the recent movie la la land 
Okay. Um, the ending of that movie is just taken from an American in Paris, basically. Oh, really? Uh, the big sequence at the end, yeah. But when she sees him playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, okay. Um, but yeah, there's these 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 sort of dreamscapes of impossible technicolor and these dances that take right. place within them. Yeah. And then uh, Antonioni, on the other hand, is going to make movies like Red Desert mm-hmm. and Zabriskie Point, which takes place in a desert. Takes yeah. place in Nevada, I think. Arizona, something like that. Um, where the space is color, but it becomes empty color. It's just deserted, empty yeah. space, yeah. but still colorized. Um, and our purse term here is going to be qualisign, <laughs> or qualisigns of deconnection and emptiness. Qualisign. So, so we're we're again at another limit of the movement images. These these empty any space whatevers. Right. And he makes reference, and uh, as good Canadians, we should make reference to the work of Michael Snow. Uh, I don't know. Canadian avant-garde filmmaker. He made films like Wavelength, which is a like 40-minute slow zoom into... Uh, uh, there's a painting on the wall in an apartment, and the camera starts from really far away, and it just slowly zooms in. It's 40 minutes long. Yeah, because there's there's things happening in the apartment. Like, people oh. show up, they have conversations, a murder might take place, you're never really sure. But the focus is always on this painting. This painting, as you get, this painting of waves, that it gets gradually closer and closer towards. Wow. And then, uh, his other famous one is uh, La Région Centrale, or the Central Region, Yeah, which he kind of put this rotating camera in the middle of nowhere and just kind of filmed a bunch of the surrounding landscape. And it's very, it's very long and difficult to watch. Oh, I bet. <laughs> no editing. They didn't try to make it interesting or anything. I think he might have edited it, but it doesn't help. <laughs> no. the, the editing doesn't help. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, this is, these are Michael Snow spaces, pure any space. I think I've heard of that. Yeah. The, the animal one or the, the nature one. Yeah. Um, any space whatevers sure yes so these are these are the two poles of the affection image any spaces whatevers and faces right Uh, and both of them have affected possibilities and the any space whatever is going to be what launches us into the time image later on at the end of the book okay the transformation of sort of all space into any space whatever right right Does that put us into chapter eight? That that will put us into chapter eight. The li- the liminal space between affect and affection and, and action. Yes, the the impulse the image. impulse image, right? Um, so yeah, this is where we get into, and I I oof, I had trouble with the the originary worlds. <laughs> Holy God! What the hell does that mean? Yeah yeah. yeah. Tell me about it. Okay, so. Let's see if I can get there. Yeah, okay. This is a point where he gets very religious. Yeah. And he, <laughs> he starts talking about the world of Cain. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he the, the two filmmakers he brings up are Eric von Stroheim and Louise Boonwell. Right. Stroheim was a uh, he started his career as an assistant to T.W. Griffith and then in the 20s he made a series of silent films 
and he's typically regarded as a realist filmmaker. His most famous film is Greed, which I believe the original version of the film ran for something over 13 hours, and it ended up getting chopped down to two. Holy God. Uh, And I think the currently restored version of it runs about four and a half. Wow. Um, but he was very meticulous about everything in the film. He wanted to shoot a scene in the desert at the end of the movie, so he actually dragged his actors and crew out to Death Valley uh, in the scorching heat to shoot the scene. Yeah, he's... Uh, Boonwell, on the other hand, uh, is the director of Un Chien Andalou, um, The Golden Age, and would direct a lot of sort of uh, surrealist films in the 60s. So, these two filmmakers, in their own way, capture worlds of entropy and degradation. And, okay, and they're on the cusp moving into action image. Yes, they're between affect and action. So they belong to the impulse image. Yes. So, in affect, there's something that kind of maps itself onto you, or works itself onto you, and it produces maybe some kind of immediate response. Yeah. But then the impulse is like the thing, the, the, the action that you produce that you are not aware of. It is not something that you are res- conscious of this thing and you're saying, I must do this. It's just something that happens. Um, it's something particular and it's a fetish. Okay. That is right. That is what he gets at, especially with Boonwell. There's this constant repetition of fetishes. Right. And here's where Deleuze kind of brings partial objects back in. Yes. Um, and yeah, so with Stroheim, these are very... These are just sort of entropic. Uh, the world sort of ends up collapsing because of the, the wife's miserliness and greed. Right. She, she cannot give up this money that she has been libidinally invested in. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Boonwell, uh, there's a real intermixing. These, these repetitive behaviors are, have good and bad qualities. Yes. Um, and so there's a further division symptom, between symptoms and fetishes or idols. Yeah. Think so. Where he says that symptoms are the presence of impulses in the deprived world, or the derived world, sorry. Uh, whereas fetishes or idols are representations of the of the fragments, whatever the, whatever that means. Okay, I'm trying. I'm trying to follow. <laughs> These are the words I see. Yeah. Uh, so maybe just building on Boonwell a little more. Um, cause he, he talks about how Boonwell has good and bad repetition and we get back to this theme of choice. Okay. Yeah. This, this very religious theme of choosing. I didn't, I didn't talk about the religiosity of it with Bresson and Dreyer, but since he talks about Cain here, right as well, bring it up. Yeah. Like with, with Boonwell, one of his most famous films is the exterminating angel where a bunch of sort of bourgeois dinner guests all end up trapped in the same room. Okay. And they can't get out. So in order to get out, they have to repeat the very gesture that got them trapped in the room in the first place. But they don't know what it is. They don't know what it is. How do they get out? <laughs> Someone eventually does it. They they realize that, oh, 
we need to repeat this thing. And so they organize everyone into place and they repeat the thing and they're all able to leave. Okay. Uh, and so they're they're able to make this choice to, to repeat and thus free themselves. Right. But then having freed themselves from this room, they all end up going to church and they all end up trapped in church. <laughs> so if bourgeois decadence didn't get them religious, yeah, religious yeah, yeah. thought will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this is... This is sort of like Boonwell uses both good and bad repetition. Yeah. He, he he shows that it's possible to escape certain illusions, but not others. Yeah. Basically. And so uh, Deleuze calls this naturalism. Yep. Mm. I I didn't really get that. Uh, and I, it exists between... Right. So we, we already said it exists between action image and affection image, where he says that the action image is realism mm-hmm. the affectionism is idealism and somehow we land in the middle and we call that naturalism i'm with you i, I have no <laughs> idea why yeah i have no idea but uh but it's it's interesting when he gets to the americans and he talks about uh king vidor and nicholas ray um and the films he brings up one of them he brings up is duel in the sun I guess I wouldn't be doing my due diligence if I didn't mention that Duel in the Sun is more a product of producer David O. Selznick than the director. There were three directors on the film. He fired a lot of them. Oh, really? So it was really a producer's film, but King Vidor is generally seen as the one who finished it. Okay. Um, And so Duel in the Sun ends with this sort of shootout between the the wife and her and her abusive husband and it's very dramatic but there is this sense of like the desert as this fallen world in duel in the sun and i think the nicholas ray example is even better like the movie wind across the everglades which is a weird obscure movie it's like christopher Plummer's first role and i think he completely disavowed it because he hated working (laughs) with the director but Wind Across the Everglades is about these bird poachers in Florida. Okay. And they're sort of like a gang of thugs who have this real intimate community. With on poaching the, birds. With, yeah, on the edge of the society, they're poachers. And so the, the ranger responsible for stopping them, played by Christopher Plummer, of course enters into their society... And he sees kind of the camaraderie and the friendship of them all. Yeah. And then he, he sees the life in this fallen world. Okay. But he in the bo- bird poachers. Yes. And then he, but he has to take the leader out, and he and he has to bring him back to society and bring him to justice. Okay. But in that kind of degraded society, degraded society there is this kind of space of like pure possibility yeah that exists a place outside of outside of the norm and i think that's that's kind of to me the most illustrative thing of like the world of cain or this originary world this world without kind of symbolic structure yeah yeah and i think that's the best example of it um, I'm not sure if you had any other thoughts on I, this chapter. I do not. 
<laughs> I do not. I was I was very much lost. Okay. Yeah, this 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 chapter is is strange. I I couldn't get my head around the naturalism thing. Yeah. Uh, and I couldn't it didn't help because I, I'm not familiar with either of these directors. <laughs> so yeah. like Benwell, I was like oh, no idea. <laughs> Power of repetition in the image. Sure. I guess that's a thing that <laughs> I can applaud. Yeah, uh, the <laughs> the only Boonwell film you'd probably be familiar with would be uh, Shia Andalou, which is the eyeball slice. Oh, that's movie. that's yeah. the yeah yeah. But I don't see how that applies. <laughs> I don't see how. Do you remember how Shia Andalou ends? Maybe with, with the two lovers buried on the beach. I I'm having memories of that. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I think I think there is a bit of the degraded world I there but it is a very you know surrealist film and the images don't necessarily follow from one another whereas right. like later boonwell films are a lot more right coherent right all right well that'll okay so that'll put us into the next chapter but we'll stop this one for yeah. now all right well great okay great so if anyone listened this far good good on you uh, if you you're any, doing great keep you, going you, we're gonna get there if you have any comments you know how to yeah leave them um obviously we'll do our best to get back to them uh and yeah you can find christina at cello burke on instagram and twitter instagram and twitter and lex hit me up and, on lex and lex <laughs> if you're in london london ontario canada yeah, yeah. uh not could, london uk i wish no not the good one not the good one um but yeah okay great all right great see you next time